Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode two of the Policy Matters podcast here in the new year. Today, we're going to be speaking about uh, something that hasn't happened in quite a while, which is legislation passing through the Senate in regular order. In this instance, the Senate passed the Ending Force Arbitration Act. That will be the topic of the discussion today, and we are very fortunate to be joined by our colleague in a New York office, Rob Sibba. Rob, could you introduce yourself real quick? Hi, Scott. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, my name is Rob Sibba. I'm a partner at Seifarth's New York office, and I focus on advising employers on compliance with various federal, state, and local requirements in hiring, employee relations, and terminations of employment. And uh, I defend employers in lawsuits that challenge various aspects of their employment practices and uh, as relevant here, arbitrations as well. And we'll, we'll arbitration talk about that arbitration is the name of the game today, Rob. It's going to be, it. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. And I think that actually that leads me in to sort of provide some context for the bill that recently passed. Ever since 2018, when the Me Too movement really started gaining sort of an unbelievable amount of steam, California, New York, New Jersey, and some other states started looking into legislation that they could pass to sort of make the arbitration process or even just sort of NDAs more transparent so that sexual harassment type claims aren't sort of buried into NDAs or confidential arbitrations. For example, in 2019, California passed AB 51, which banned arbitration as a condition of employment. New York State passed CPLR 7515, does something similar. And New Jersey, SB 121, all those states were sort of trying to find ways to make sex harassment claims more transparent in light of the Me Too movement. Now, I'll say that a lot of those laws got caught up in litigation as to whether or not those state passed laws were preempted by the Federal Arbitration Act. For example, in the Eastern District of California, which is where I actually used to clerk, <laughs> uh, the district court in that case completely held, stopped any enforcement of AB 51, holding that it was preempted under the FAA. But then it went to the Ninth Circuit. What the Ninth Circuit essentially did was just vacated the preliminary injunction as it relates to arbitration specifically, but it didn't dissolve the injunction as it relates to a number of civil penalties that were added. And as far as the New York case goes, the district court in that case held that that law was preempted by the Federal Arbitration Act. What's interesting about this specific piece of legislation is we're no longer going to see the preemption problems because it went through Congress. And this is the first time in a long time that we've seen a piece of legislation pass through the Senate in regular order, which is in itself significant as we might see other sort of, you know, one of the things that's been very prevalent is non-complete legislation. Perhaps it'll get the same set of boosts that this bill that recently passed got. Basically, over the past decade, Congress has had to use reconciliation to pass the Affordable Care Act, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017, the American Rescue Plan. Now, I think this this is specifically where we get into passing through regular order as opposed to reconciliation. As the Build Back Better Act was slated to be passed reconciliation, obviously that did not work out. So now we're seeing some other stuff sort of splinter into passage through regular order. Now, to that end, I apologize for the lengthy introduction, but I think some sort of Me Too litigation state legislation context is important because it is actually 
kind of shows how our system of federalism works, wherein states are policies of, you know, experiment with policy. And then the federal government has the opportunity to then see what works and what hasn't. And in this case, the Senate recently passed H.R. 445, which is entitled, you know, Ending Forced Arbitration. Just in a nutshell, Rob, now that we finally get to you, what does H.R. 445 do and why should employers be concerned about it? Great, Scott. Thanks for that introduction. And it's very helpful to have that context. I mean, to your point, I think the plaintiffs bar and the individuals on on that side of the aisle have been litigating against arbitration agreements for a very long time. But it was the Me Too movement that really galvanized that effort and brought it to the forefront. So after the state level legislations uh, that you've referenced, we, we now have this federal law that really boils down to two paragraphs and a handful of sentences. In sum, basically what this law says is that pre-dispute arbitration agreements and pre-dispute joint action waivers are no longer going to be valid or enforceable with respect to any case that is filed under federal, tribal, or state law that relates to sexual assault disputes or sexual harassment disputes. Now I'm paraphrasing that language from the statute just a tiny bit because it's it's a little bit more verbose, but that's effectively what's going on. The law further defines what a pre-dispute arbitration agreement is. And basically what it refers to is an arbitration agreement that someone might sign at the beginning or during their employment well in advance of any conduct that might be subject to that agreement actually happens. So you start a job, they present you with an arbitration agreement, you sign it. It's not until some time later that something happens that a dispute arises. That is a pre-dispute arbitration agreement. What about a pre-dispute joint action waiver? That relates to a class action waiver or a collective action waiver. So basically, if you have a class action alleging some sort of sexual harassment or some sort of activity uh, like that, and it's brought as a class basis. So whether it's a single individual bringing the case or an individual on behalf of a group, in either one of those situations, the arbitration agreement would not apply. Specifically though, as it relates to sexual assault disputes and sexual harassment disputes. The second paragraph, it's a paragraph only the lawyers are going to love. Yeah. It's uh, It really relates to who decides the issue of arbitrability and it squarely Which, which is a really big issue that as delegation as to that specific issue is something that's litigated heavily in any kind of arbitration litigation. As I said, an issue only the lawyers are going to love because nobody <laughs> people are really, really going to be all that impressed by who decides between the arbitrator and the court. But this law squarely rested at the feet of the judiciary. Those issues will be decided by the court. So in substance, that's basically what this law is going to do once it's in effect. Yeah, I think it's also maybe relevant and worth noting that it applies to not only federal claims of sexual harassment, say under 42 U.S.C. 1981 or Title VII, but applies to all state claims for discrimination of sex or sexual harassment. I live in California, so the FIHA, anytime that's implicated, right? I, and it also applies to any tribal law as well. So it's not just federal claims that this is applicable to. Now that we have you, Rob, I, th- I think that, as you noted, the language of the statute is actually quite mercifully short, but it does provide some, I guess, ambiguity and sort of on the face of it. And I think that the first sort of ambiguity that employers have been concerned about is this provision, which provides that no pre-dispute arbitration agreement or pre-dispute joint action waiver shall be valid or enforceable with respect to, quote, case, unquote. So. 
does case mean that if a potential plaintiff has only one sexual harassment claim, but a bunch of other claims, is that entire case, is the whole thing subject to this law? Or can it be bifurcated where only the sexual harassment claim cannot be arbitrated, but the other claims still can? I think that's a really great question, Scott. And I think to some extent, the reason that we're asking this question to begin with is that the law does a good job of defining a couple of the concepts, but there's definitely language in here that's susceptible to multiple interpretations. And perhaps at some point, this wasn't really something that the drafters of, of the statute really considered. I think the most natural reading of this statute in the context that it's in is that a the word case really has to refer to court litigation or some sort of litigation process. Because to your point, if someone has a claim of sexual harassment under federal or state law, it doesn't really matter what, what level statute it is. Let's say it's a federal statute, but the employee also has claims of a breach of contract, let's say because of a disagreement about how compensation was paid. Maybe it's a commission that wasn't was yes. paid that the employee alleges was incorrect. Maybe there's some sort of overtime issue. Maybe there's some sort of leave issue. Maybe there's some sort of other legally protected aspect of their employment that correlates. You know, oftentimes it's interesting because oftentimes in litigation, you find that when there's a breakdown of the employment relationship that the two parties, the employer and the employee have some sort of falling out, there oftentimes are multiple failures or multiple aspects of that relationship that that once that breakdown happens are implicated. It's not uncommon to see a, a range of claims brought in litigation, as you well know. The most natural reading and the most natural application in this context, I think, would be that claims of sexual assault and claims of sexual harassment would be implicated by the statute, but the other ones would not be. Now, that could be difficult because if you have an employee that's bringing in a case alleging sexual harassment and let's say hypothetically, retaliation for FMLA leave, that FMLA claim would still be subject to an arbitration agreement. This law does not on its face disrupt that dynamic. And yeah. reading this law to sort of sweep under the rug or, or ride the coattails of a sexual harassment claim, I think would go well beyond what was intended when this law was conceptualized and drafted. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. And I always worry about relying on legislative history, especially, you know, congressional legislative history. But if you look to it in this context, you know, Senator Graham and Senator Ernst during the debate on the bill both basically said that, you know, claims would need to be bifurcated and only sex harassment claims are subject to this. To your point, Scott, I think Justice Scalia, rest in peace, would be turning over if there was a, a tremendous amount of weight placed on the legislative, on legislative history. history. Yeah, Indeed. And I don't think his textualism would, 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 would allow that sort of legislative history to come in. I think you're right. And I think that, you know, relying on that context is perhaps a little much. But even doing so, you kind of get to the same result. Yeah, and I, I think then moving on to what is perhaps even more concerning to some employers was this sort of retroactivity provision where it says that this law does not apply to a claim that arose out of, you know, something that until happened until the enactment of the statute. I think that a good example is sort of a 2021 company Christmas party, wherein someone is alleging that someone sexually harassed them at that party, right? So I think the most defense-friendly interpretation of this retroactivity provision would be that even if a claim is filed, say, after enactment of this, after the president signs it, that 2021 conduct at the Christmas party 
would still be subject to arbitration because of the retroactivity provision. That sort of harkens us back to civil procedure and supplemental jurisdiction and sort of the common nucleus of operative facts that gives rise to a claim, right? I think that's an interpretation that possibly could come out of this. I think there's another interpretation, Rob, that we spoke to earlier. Scott, you're really triggering my PTSD with some of those things. And if you start talking about international shoe, I'm out. I'm just going to give you that warning right now. Hey, uh, I will tell you real quick, Rob, that I actually teach civil procedure and I recently taught international shoe. So that might be why the common nucleus of operative facts is on top of my brain. 20 USD 1367. Anyways, proceed. Dangerous territory here, Scott. Dangerous territory. <laughs> But no, I think I think there's a great point. And you mentioned a defense friendly interpretation, and I'll challenge that a little bit. I'll, I'll, I'll say it this way. At the end of the day, what you wind up kind of seeing in the employer community is that employers are heavily regulated by a lot of different laws at federal, state and, and a variety of different levels. And the question that I get and I think a lot of folks at our firm get is basically, what do I do? What do I do to stay on the right side of the law? What does this mean? And what do I do? And I think that the most defense friendly interpretation is going to be one that sets a bright line rule. You know what? I, I think that's right, Rob. Perhaps the better way to phrase it is not really the most defense friendly interpretation, but perhaps the most arbitration friendly interpretation. This is the rule. This is what you do. And this is how you comply. The fact that there's a dispute or, or a potential ambiguity over the retroactivity of this law basically is going to result in unnecessary litigation of having cases filed in court, motion practice, thousands of dollars spent arguing these issues to eventually ferret this out. But at the end of the day, in my opinion, the most defense friendly interpretation would be one that just sets the clearest, most manageable rule. So let's take your example of the 2021 Christmas party. And by the way, I think this this will be an issue for some time, but eventually, you know, as time goes on, it's not really going to matter. But at least in the short term, what strikes me as likely the easiest to manage approach is as of the effective date, any case that is filed will be subject to this new law. That means regardless of when the underlying conduct happened, when that case is filed, you know, one day after the, the law goes into effect, this law will have invalidated the arbitration provision. The alternative, of course, is that we look at when the actual conduct happened. If the sexual harassment happened before the effective date, it's troubling because if you invalidate the arbitration agreement, what you're basically doing is depriving the parties of something that they had agreed to, the benefit of their bargain. So now, all of a sudden, they operated under this understanding that they would be subject to arbitration. A couple months down the road, well, just because of timing, it no longer applies. So I think at the end of the day, even though it might be a little bit more, you know, I think the, the, the most palatable result is just the clear one, which is as of the date, everything that's filed is subject to this new law. Right. And there is certainly something to be said, and there is high value and certainty especially in the employer community. And if we know, I, I think, Rob, you and I talked about this, is that sexual harassment can occur on a continuum. It's not like a singular snapshot in time, right? It could be before and after the enactment date. So a bright line in which the retroactivity of provision applies would be ideal. Other than the most extreme cases of sexual harassment, where there is one bombastic incident of sexual yeah. harassment, the vast majority of these cases are incidents over time. So if let's say the effective date is February 1, if you have things at the Christmas party that happened and then you have things that happened after the operative date, 
I mean, what are you going to do? What are you going to have an arbitration and a court case for some things that happen now and some things that happen later? Some things happen later, but you wouldn't have the full context of both conducts, right? It it would make no sense. It would make no sense and it would create a lot of problems. Indeed, Rob, this has been um, a fascinating conversation. We are running late. But I just want to thank you again. This has been wonderful. And if anyone has any questions about the nuances of this, please feel free to reach out to your favorite Safe Arth counselor. Scott, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. And uh, I look forward to, to doing another one of these with you sometime in the future. We certainly will, especially if more congressional legislation gets past the Senate. Death, taxes, and uh, legislation from the Senate. I love it. <laughs> okay, indeed. Thank you, Robert. Appreciate it. Thanks so much.